All right, so few places in all of the Scripture is it more evident than this place we'll talk about tonight, that man's economy is not God's economy. Man's economy is not God's economy. But Satan may be trying to mess up my thing tonight. I always talk about man's economy versus God's economy and the difference between the two. But here is just a shocking, startling revelation of how God sees things so drastically different than we do and that we need to we need to wrap our heads around all that God's saying and the way that he feels about things. So in Exodus 20, verse 15, the Bible simply says, Thou shalt not steal. That is not new news to anybody in this room. But I want you to just begin tonight by considering some things with me. I want you to consider that This statement that God makes is in the same list, and it is, by the way, a very short list, the same list with idolatry, murder, adultery. Think of how crazy this is. None of us, none of us, put stealing and murder on the same level. None of us do that. We would all probably say, well, stealing is wrong. But murder is way, way more wrong. Or adultery. Or idolatry. And so when we, when we hear the words, thou shalt not steal, this is what we do. We think of a man crawling out of a window with a black ski mask over his face with a pillowcase full of your stuff and, you know, running off into the night. That's what we picture, which is a huge mistake, and here's why. Because unless you do that in your spare time, which I highly doubt you do, then you're just pushing that off onto some other thing and thinking, well, you know, People shouldn't do that, but they do that. But that's not what God's talking about. You see, this very simple, familiar, straightforward command is speaking to our struggle with integrity. That's what this whole conversation will be about. Thou shalt not steal is a statement rooted in integrity and has far-reaching implications on our lives and the way that we are meant to live for more. You see, that guy who's crawling out of the window with a bag full of stuff, what we have to understand is that many small steps in the wrong direction preceded this moment. You see, he didn't wake up one day just a normal, law-abiding citizen and think, you know what I'm going to do today? Today I think I'm going to go across the street, I'm going to break into their house, I'm going to steal all their stuff. That is not how that happened. What happened was, a long time ago, he or she decided to start taking shortcuts. They started to maneuver around things, try to take the easy ways, you know, uh, start to take things that weren't theirs, get away with things that they were able to get away with. And maybe even as a child, they lacked proper supervision and structure to teach them. And so they learned to just manipulate the system to get whatever out of it they could in little small ways that started to have Bigger and bigger and bigger implications. 
So let me give you a biblical definition of stealing, okay? Stealing is a desire to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible. That's what stealing is. So the essence of stealing or the essence of somebody being a thief is being a taker without being a giver. And if that's true, then think of all the ways that this statement affects our lives that we never even consider. Think about how in God's economy, there's a whole lot of stealing going on in marriages, in families, in churches, and in our community. And nobody ever sees it as stealing or ever calls it what it is. Because we live in a culture that champions taking without giving. We don't, we, we, we have professionalized that. What God is referring to when he says thou shalt not steal, in many ways, what you'll see tonight, in many, many ways, what has become today known as the American dream is in direct violation of this commandment. This commandment addresses every attempt to have much and give little. So let's get practical. Let's start to dive in and, and look at why is this so important to God? Why does God feel about this the way he does? And when you begin to dive into it and explore the scripture and look at all of the things that God has to say about all these various things, it's amazing how so many things in our culture and society start to make perfect sense. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to, the first reason why this is so important to God is because God believes in ownership. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. But God is very big on ownership. Very big. It's very important to God. And it's very much connected to what God's talking about in the Ten Commandments. Now, God, obviously, is the source of our ownership. So from the very beginning, God chooses a people who have nothing and do nothing and deserve nothing. And he begins to move in their life simply based on his grace and his plan and his purpose. Ultimately rescuing them from 400 years of oppression to slavery. He brings them to the promised land. Now, now look, at, look at Deuteronomy verse 4. I just want you to look at this with me. The Bible says, God, he brought out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Now look at how God specifically, intentionally, and directly brings ownership into this event. Look at the wording that's there. Notice God didn't just say, oh, I have a place for you. I'm going to clear a place out and you're welcome to, to go there. He didn't say that. He very specifically, and this is all through the scripture, he talks about how he is giving a place, how he took a place and gives a place. 
Now, why does he do that? Why? Why is that so important to God? Well, it's because God entrusts what he owns to us as stewards. And why does God do this? Why does God, why doesn't God just, um, why doesn't God just let us use things? Why doesn't God just give us things, no strings attached? What, what is this issue of stewardship? Why is God so big on ownership? And then the things that he gives us, we are stewards of those things. Because guess what is embedded in being a steward? Two things. Number one, there's responsibility. Guess what? If you're a steward, which you are, there's responsibility because guess what a steward has to do? He has to give account to the master. So there's responsibility and there's accountability. And the only way there's responsibility and accountability is if there's ultimate ownership and then a sub-level ownership. If it's just a free-for-all, no accountability. Look at Psalm 115, 16. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. You see that? Again, there's a conveyance. God is clearly saying, I'm the owner, and now you are the steward. I want you to see this because it's very, very important. Now, secondly... He believes in ownership. And why does he believe in ownership? Well, because ownership enhances life. And it has a tremendous impact on life. And the impact would not be present apart from ownership. So, for example, I want you to consider how stealing undermines community by breeding distrust and fostering suspicion. You see, I want you to realize something. If I stole something from you, suppose I stole something from you that, that didn't matter to you, that you didn't need, that you didn't want. It didn't matter to you at all. But I took it without asking. Okay? Does our relationship stay the same? See, if I steal something that's very valuable, valuable to you, of course we're going to have a problem. But forget that. I'm talking about if I steal something from you that doesn't even mean anything to you and you don't mean it, and here's what happens. So then I come, you don't come to me and say, hey, I want it back. You don't care, but here's what happens. From that point forward, you distrust me. See, our relationship just changed. Because you stole. Stealing, what's at issue with stealing is not, it's, it's the value of what you're stealing is not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is the integrity of stealing. What happens to our integrity when we steal. So God forbids his people to steal because stealing brings reproach on his name. Now, when God gives the Ten Commandments, he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses to give to a very specific people. He's not telling the world, thou shalt not have any other God besides me. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not steal. He's telling his people these things. That's who he's talking to. And the reason that he's telling his people this is because when his people steal, they bring reproach upon his name because in doing so, you're undermining God's plan for life in the land, for life. And you're undermining him. You're being a poor steward. You see, when everyone owns something, no one does. 
No one does. So, so let me explain that to you, okay? So this is why you've never, it would be absolutely bizarre if somebody said to you, let's say you were, you know, driving through a, uh, the parking lot of the mall and somebody said, wait a minute, wait a minute, pull over, stop. Before we leave, I just want to go in and use the public restroom one more time because I just get very few chances to do that. Nobody does that. You know why a public restroom is disgusting? Because nobody owns that. That's why it's not, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. That's why your bathroom at home is not like that. Because it's yours. You, you, ever, you ever taken a shower in a public shower? How about, um, how about at work? Now, I work with some wonderful people. But there's some similarities to my work and everyone else's work. There's a community refrigerator. You ever been excited about putting your lunch in the community fridge? See, Tony has his own refrigerator in his office. Because I don't want anything jumping off they stuff onto my stuff. I'm funny about that. It's nasty. You know why? Because it's not your fridge. You wouldn't let that thing grow, that science project grow at home. But you'll let it grow at work. Because guess what? In all of life, when no one owns something... It's a disaster. It's a proven principle. So, a lack of ownership creates poor stewardship. There must be ownership in order for there to be stewardship. If you remove ownership, you destroy stewardship. And here's the thing, let's suppose you, if you take responsibility for something that no one owns as if it was your responsibility, right? Let's suppose that you decided you were going to take it upon yourself to be a community servant and you're going to clean the bathrooms at the mall so that everyone has a nice and wonderful experience in the mall bathroom. How long is that going to last? Not forever. You might go for a day or two or a week or maybe even a month. But eventually you're going to quit. You know why? Because eventually the reality that you don't own it and the abuse of everyone else is just going to overwhelm you. Because there's no stewardship where there's no ownership. Now, that is a very, very important principle. And I would say it's a very important thing for us to talk about right now. In this country right now. You see, communitarianism is an ideology that emphasizes the connection between the individual and the community whereby there is an implied duty to care for one's neighbor. This is the structure. This would be the, the secular term that you would use to describe the, the structure of society in the Scripture. The Scripture depicts God's people living in communitarianism. 
In communitarianism, you would say, I am obligated to give what's mine to help my neighbor in need. Now understand, I am obligated. Am I forced? No. You're obligated, not forced, to give what is yours. It's very important. To your neighbor in need. Contrast that with communism or socialism, which is a movement to create a classless, moneyless, stateless social order structured upon common ownership of the means of production as well as a social, political, and economic ideology that aims at the establishment of this social order. Now, this is a very important concept to understand in a biblical framework because there, listen, it, this idea that would say there is no such thing as mine, only ours. It sounds very romantic, doesn't it? It sounds so, you know, so nice and so healthy and so, you know, kind. And it is an absolute disaster. Listen, listen. This idea in our country that what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate the, the, the classes. We're going to take the wealthy and move them down here. And we're going to take the poor and we're going to move them up here so we can all be the same. But here's the thing. I don't want you to say, oh, yes, that's terrible, that's wrong. I want you to understand why. Why is that wrong? I don't want you to tell me it's wrong. I want to know why. I want you to be able to have an have a intelligent conversation with someone and say, the reason that that is wrong is because what the Bible teaches is that, do you know the Bible says that the poor will always be with us? Do you know that the Bible says that there are people who are poor and that God made them that way? Do you know there are people that are rich and that God made them that way? And do you know that the Bible, the Bible teaches that we should live in such a communitarian way as which poverty is not a curse in the Bible. Do you understand that? It's not a curse. You know why? Because God provides people with means to care for people who don't have means so that the people who don't have means don't really know the difference, nor do the people who do have means. Now listen, I am a person who was driven all of my life because I grew up so poor, I was driven in life to not be poor. What motivated me to work harder than everyone else and to strive to be excellent at everything I did was so that I would not be poor because I hated being poor. Do you know why? Because I was poor in a culture where nobody cared for the poor. Flip that around and read the book of Ruth. Here you have a Moabite woman and her mother-in-law who are traveling across the landscape to get home to Israel. They have absolutely nothing. They were the most dirt poor, most pitiful people on the planet. Two ladies, widows, no means, no money, no family, no nothing. They immediately come into Israel, and within a matter of days... They have plenty of food to eat. In a matter of a week, week and a half, Ruth is literally carrying sheaves of grain. She's huffing them from Boaz's field back to store them somewhere. Now I want to ask you a question. A month into living in Israel, Ruth is still dirt poor, but does she know that? Does she feel that? Does she live that way? You know why? Because it's a communitarian culture. You see, 
Unbiblical living is what's made poverty a curse. You know what makes poverty a curse? People with means living irresponsibly waving it in the face of people who don't have who and who continually are in a state of need. That's what makes it a curse. God's plan, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. God's plan is for there to be poor and for there to be wealthy and for there to be a communitarian society whereby people are good stewards of whatever they have. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that when you, I want you to see beyond the headlines, okay? I want you to see beyond the candidates for president. I want you to understand that when you are intaking information and when you are looking at these platforms and you're hearing the things that people are saying, it is a spiritual war. And the enemy is working to unravel what God wants to be. And, in, and, and it sounds very, you can't just go, well, I don't like this or this is wrong or that's wrong. Why? Why? You have to know so you can see what's going on right in front of you. That's, what's, that's exactly what's happening. And it all has its roots. Who would have ever thought, and thou shalt not steal? That's what socialism and communism are, are founded upon, stealing. See, stealing can only exist where there is ownership. Now go with me, think it through. If there's no ownership, there's no stealing. Now listen, this is what we do. We say, we tell our children, it was wrong, you stole that, it didn't belong to you. And what our kids should say is, no mom, no dad, you're wrong. Because you are. Because it has to belong to someone to be stealing. So you can't just say you stole something because it didn't belong to you. Because that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Okay, I know you don't believe me. I'm going to prove it to you. So let me ask you a question. If we get on a boat and we go out into the Gulf of Mexico deep sea fishing. Has anybody ever caught a fish in the Gulf of Mexico, pulled the fish up and said, stealing this fish. No, they didn't. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was it your fish? No. But then, but you took it. So according to your definition, you took something that wasn't yours, you're stealing That's not stealing. If no one owns it, it's not stealing. Someone owns it. Now, what you got to understand is that there's very few things in life that no one owns. But what I'm getting you to see is that everything is predicated on ownership. And there are places in life, like going out in the Gulf of Mexico and taking fish, where but they're few and far between. And so what's it? I don't want anybody's kids taking things that don't belong to them. I just want you to understand when you're teaching them to teach them according to what God says so they understand, hold on, this is an issue of ownership. You see, by forbidding 
theft, God is protecting ownership. That's what he's doing when he says, thou shalt not steal. He's protecting ownership because ownership matters. Oh, my goodness, does it matter. And one of the most missed principles of ownership and how it matters is how it enhances life in the land. Now, I have an advantage here because I learned this principle through my father-in-law over the course of time. And he taught me so much about this issue, and at the time, I didn't even know what he was teaching me. But he did. You see, he taught me how ownership enhances life. Because what happened was, he was a pastor all of his life. And so when he got when he retired from pastoring and evangelism, he was poor. And my wife was always poor growing up. They always, you know, were, lived very simple lives. But then late in his life, he started working in real estate, Buying houses, fixing them up, selling them, so on and so forth. And in a very short time, he amassed a very impressive fortune. And here's what he told him. This is what he would do. He would buy a house that no one wanted in a neighborhood that no one would go into. Then he would call his son-in-law and he would say, hey, uh, I need you to ride with me. That was code word for I'm about to make you my slave. And he would reel me in and he would take me to a house on a street where I would never go. And I would go to that street and it would be scary and nasty. And here's the thing, it would bring back bad memories because that's the streets I used to live on when I was young. And we would go in there and this is what we would do. We wouldn't just go there and fix up his house. That would be simple. You know what we would do? We would go there and we would clean up the house that he bought. Then we would walk up and down the street and clean up all the trash on the street. Now, at the time, I wasn't a real proponent of this theory. I was like, what in the world are we doing? And he would say, just, you do that side, I'll do this side. And we'd pick up all the trash on the road. And then he would say, now watch. And the people would come out of their houses. And they would go, what are you doing? And I would say, ask him. And he would talk to them, and you know what they would do? Then they would start picking up the trash in their yard. Then he would fix the house up. Now, all the houses on this street would all be rental houses. But he would buy his house, and he would fix his house up, but he wouldn't rent his house. He would sell his house to someone who could never afford to buy a house and only afford to rent a house, but he would sell it to them, so that instead of paying rent, they could just pay him for the house. So he would collect back his money for the house, but then they would own the house. And he would teach me how when you rent a house to someone, they just tear it up. But when you sell a house to someone, they take pride in it. And then this is what would happen. Then he would try to buy other houses on the street. And then I would, I've seen this happen in multiple places in Gulfport. Then... The people who live on that street would start cleaning all their houses up. And then people, look, the people that he would sell the house to would start telling their neighbors, hey, man, you need to cut your grass. 
I mean, it's looking kind of trashy out here. Come on. Because they owned the house. Now, before, they didn't care because they were just renting. But when they owned it, they had stewardship, accountability, buy-in, skin in the game. They cared. And suddenly, this whole block would change. And what used to be this trash-filled, junky place, people started making it better. You know why? Because there was ownership. Someone came in and brought a simple biblical principle to bear on people's lives. Ownership enhances life. You see, I don't just tell young couples when I'm doing premarital counseling, listen, I don't just tell them that, look, I understand in the beginning, you know, you're going to have to get yourself going. But look, you your first order of business needs to be you need to own a house. Renting is a dead-end street. And I'm not just telling them that as a financial advisor, because I'm not. I'm telling them that as a spiritual principle. Ownership enhances life. That's God's intention. You need to remember that. You need to be a, a proponent. You know how you can be a blessing to people? is by promoting that in whatever way you can to people. Giving people ownership of things enhances life. God's people are to live in a communitarian culture. That's what he intends. Ownership will protect life. It will because property supports, maintains, and enhances our lives. You see, all my life growing up, we never owned a house. Never. And one of the great sources of insecurity in my life was the fact that I knew that everywhere we moved, it was only a matter of time before we got behind on the rent and would have to move again. So I never had any, there was no security because we never owned anything. We were just nomadic. But what my father-in-law taught me was that when someone with means comes along, and here's the thing, he went from no means to having means, but when he had means, he leveraged his means for the good of the community. And I got to see that whole thing work right before my eyes. And it was such a, a, a learning principle in my life. Most of what I'm sharing with you tonight, he taught me. Now, how, 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 how do, we, how do we take this reality and this truth and just apply it in our everyday lives? Okay, let's talk about that. Here's some examples. In the world as his children, by failing to understand the fact that God has chosen to share ownership with us, listen, we violate, thou shall not steal. Because what you've got to understand about this commandment is to really receive what God wants you to receive. You, I need you to understand what you do that violates this command. Because even if you don't know you're doing it when you do it, you're doing it nonetheless. When you fail to understand that God has chosen to share ownership with you, you violate His command. Psalm 8. What is man that you'd be mindful of him, the son of man that you'd visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have, now listen, listen to the ownership in this. You have made him to have dominion over the works of his hands. You have put all things under his feet, the sheep, the oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. And what does that language in Psalm 8, is it reminiscent of? Eden, from the very beginning, God used this term dominion. He used this ownership. He used this 
responsibility, accountability. Listen, it wasn't just... God didn't create Eden and then just go, now you just go, you know, it's all the same. Everybody, like it wasn't like a public park. Oh, no. No, no. He looked at Adam and said, you have dominion over this. It's always been that way. It's God's intention to be that way. Life is better that way because it's the way it's meant to be. So therefore, when we steal, we indirectly attack God's rule over the world. You see, stealing is violating God's principle of stewardship because... When you steal something, you're taking something that, number one, God didn't give you stewardship over, but also he gave someone else stewardship over. So you're doubly violating God's rule over the world. Not to mention the fact that what you're communicating by stealing is dissatisfaction in God's sovereign provision. You see, when you steal... You're saying, I'm not satisfied with what God's given me. And believe me, I'm not talking about crawling out of somebody's window with a bag full of stuff that's not yours. I'm talking about when you lack integrity. When you just skirt the edges of things. You're saying, I'm dissatisfied with God as provider. What about in the church? This is why those who withhold tithes and offerings from God are thieves, according to God. This is another principle that the Scripture teaches that I understand and know through the example of watching my father-in-law. I want you to read with me Malachi chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. To which man says, in what way have we robbed you? God responds in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If you will not open if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out such blessings that there will be no room even enough to receive it. I want to point some things out to you about this passage. Because I love you and I want you to flourish spiritually. And so I'm going to help you tonight. I want you to understand first and foremost, I want you to notice what God says. He says, When people say, how have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. I want you to notice that God didn't say in tithes. He said in two things. And those two things are not the same thing. And one of the reasons that I believe that so many people are in such bondage financially and God does not bless them is because they violate this very simple principle. You're breaking the commandment and stealing from God. And sometimes it may be completely out of sheer ignorance. So let me just explain a few things to you. First of all, the commandment of God is for his people to tithe. An offering is not a tithe, and a tithe is not an offering. And so whatever money you give to the church that you designate for something is not a tithe. It is not. So if you give $10,000 a month to the church, but you designate it somewhere, you're not tithing. And the judgment of God is upon you. We're commanded first to tithe and then offerings. They're two different things. Notice what God says. It's right there. He says, bring all the what into the storehouse? How come he he didn't say bring all the tithes and offerings? He said the tithes. 
God commands us to give 10% of our income to the church, not to designate it, not to control it. Not, that's an offering. That's not a tithe. You can skin that cat any way you want to, but I'm convinced that is one of the primary reasons why people are in the bondage that they're in. Number two, number two. What God is saying here is that nothing's changed. The average person in the church gives less than 3% of their income. Now, this is what I want you to know. I'm not beating you up about your giving. I'm trying to help you. Okay? So let me help you. Let me teach you what I've learned firsthand about God. God always does what he promises to do. Amen? Now, don't amen that unless you believe that he does that universally all across the board. Now, early on in my spiritual journey, here's how my father-in-law taught me this principle. I watched him go from nothing to having something. And one day he started telling me this story about how as a young Christian. Now, of course, he knew that I was a brand new believer and I was trying to figure all this out. And so he would answer questions that I didn't even know to ask. And then I would realize later, oh, that's what he was doing. So he tells me a story one day. We're sitting out on the porch of his house. And he tells me a story about how when he first got saved and how him and Joanne were so poor and You know, she stayed home with the kids. The kids were small. He was just an enlisted man in the military. They were stationed in California. It was a high cost of living. They they were struggling. But they got saved. And so they were trying to figure out how they could be generous to, to the church, how they could tithe. And they literally couldn't, they didn't have a margin to tithe. So Bill comes home one day and he tells my mother in law, he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to quit smoking cigarettes because at that time everybody smoked cigarettes. It was like 1960 or something. He said, I'm going to quit smoking cigarettes and then the money I used to spend on. Now, understand, I've never smoked cigarettes, but probably some of you have. You don't just go, well, today I'm going to quit smoking cigarettes. But he did because he was so committed to what he was going to do with the money. He just goes, I'm not going to smoke them anymore. And I'm going to give the money that I spent on cigarettes to the church. And then to make up the difference so that we can be faithful to God, Joanne says, well, what I'm going to do is instead of taking your uniform to the cleaners, I'm going to start ironing all your stuff at home. Okay, you with me? All right, I know you're no big deal. Except for when he told me this story, I was sitting on his front porch that was on Highway 90 and overlooked the Gulf of Mexico. The guy who didn't have any money and didn't have anything now lived right on the beach overlooking the water in Gulfport. And I'm sitting on his front porch of this home that... You know, I couldn't ever imagine in a billion years being able to own, looking at this beautiful view, listening to what he's telling me. And then he gets up. He said to me, so Joanne decided that she was going to start ironing my shirts. And then he pointed to his shirt right here around his wrist. And there was a crease right there. And then he walked in the house. You ever taken a shirt to the cleaners? This shirt was cleaned at the cleaners. There's no crease right here. He didn't say anything. What he was telling me was, I live in a house that overlooks the water, and my wife is still ironing my shirts 
so that I can be generous to God. In other words, I watched him give away so much of his money for the kingdom. And it was just the little ways that he taught me about the faithfulness of God when you're generous. Now, one of the most beautiful things about, for example, uh, our church is now on this Realm software, so you can do all these things electronically. Well, let me tell you something. If you download the Realm app and you open up the app, your giving history is in that app. All the money that you've given every month for the last year after year after year is right there on that app. And I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the folks Wednesday night. Any of you are welcome at any time. You come up to me and I will open that app and I will gladly invite you to look at my giving record. Because let me tell you something. I have watched God be so faithful in my life, it is unbelievable. And from the very beginning, I have been faithful to God financially, and God has always exceedingly and abundantly met the needs of my family. Always. And I watch so many people struggle and so many people get themselves in so much debt and so many problems. And here's the thing. When I came to work at this church, I was a part-time youth pastor. I had two little kids. I made $258 a week. And I lived in a trailer on my in-law's property that I didn't even own my wife drove a car that was a hand-me-down. And I had this old junky truck that I bought from the auction. But you know what? We've always been faithful to God. Don't make the mistake of robbing from God. Don't do that. See, because stealing is taking matters of provision into your own hands and it can only lead to destruction. Listen to me. How could you possibly believe that you are a better provider than God? But if you are unfaithful to God financially, that is the posture that you've taken. Now, I do want to clarify something. God never expects you to give what you don't have. Never. Ever. So if you don't have it, don't give it. But if you're, if you're in a situation to where you can't tithe, then you're absolute number one goal in life ought to be to get to a place where you can tithe. I had a wonderful conversation Wednesday night with a dear saint in our church and she was talking to me about how faithful God's been to her financially and you know what I said? I said, I know that. And she said, how do you know that? And I said, because I remember years and years ago I came over to your house one day and you were sitting in your chair, a little widow in your little place with your little stuff, barely on a totally fixed income trying to figure out how to make it work. And you were sitting in your chair and you had this big bowl and you were snapping beans. And she said, you remember that? I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember thinking to myself, God... Her garden wasn't that. It was like the size of a piece of plywood. And that sucker produced more food than you could imagine. Because God was enabling her to be in a position where she could be generous by giving her food that she didn't have to pay for. 
Isaiah chapter 10. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. What about then Isaiah 10? Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees or write misfortune, which they have prescribed and robbed the needy of justice and take what is right from the poor of my people. So what about at work? We have to understand that failing to care for the poor in God's eyes is robbery. It's robbery. It's robbery. So this is what God's going to do. He's going to hold Christian employees responsible for their stewardship and giving their best to the person or the company that employs them. Because if you don't, you're stealing. If you slack off at work, you're stealing. You're violating God's command. You're bringing reproach upon him. And here's the thing. Let's just be honest. If you're a slacker at work, nobody's listening to anything that you got to say about God. You ought to be the hardest work. Don't you dare open your mouth about Jesus until you have worked your butt off. Because that's your witness. We have a responsibility. If we're getting paid to do a job, then by God, we ought to do that job. I don't have tolerance for slackers. I don't respect people who don't work hard. And I certainly don't listen to anything they say. I don't respect them. But at the same time, God's going to hold Christian employers responsible for their stewardship and paying appropriate salaries to those who generate the wealth that they enjoy. Listen, you can't say, well, I would work harder if my boss paid me better. No. If you are a Christian, you work hard because that's God's command to you. But let me tell you something. Your employer is going to be accountable to God. And especially Christian employers, you ought to, be the, you ought to treat your people better than anybody treats their people. Always. James chapter 4, Romans 13, 7. So at the heart of the Eighth Commandment are these two things. Number one, my integrity. It asks the question, what does my stewardship declare about my love for God? This is what stealing is about. Integrity. And ownership is about stewardship. What does your stewardship of what you have declare about your love for God? And number two, your gratitude. What does my generosity declare about my trust in God? Because if I have a love for God, I am going to take seriously the responsibility that I have of the things that he's entrusted to me, right? Absolutely. And if I trust in God, then I'm going to be generous with the things that God entrusts to me as a steward. Those two things, it's love and trust and love and trust and love and trust. People who aren't generous, they have a trust issue. People who don't take care of things, they have a love issue. If you're not a good steward, it's a love issue. Generosity is a trust issue. And it all boils down to integrity, and it all boils down to what God's trying to establish from the very beginning about this issue. And so it should be no surprise to anyone that Satan is the great taker of what does not belong to him. Nowhere is this more evident than in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his motive. That's what he does. He is the great taker. He is constantly trying to get as much as possible while giving as little as possible. Those who do his work 
will always find, listen, think about, I don't, I don't know how much you're aware of this, but think about if you could see with my eyes, the false teachers and the harmful people that God tries to implant in his church that I'm always on the lookout for and watching and keeping an eye on. And they're always around. They're always here. And you know what? You know what's always true about them? They're always dissatisfied. Do you know why? Because Satan is a horrible employer. He takes advantage of his own people as he's trying to get them to take advantage of you. But on the other hand, Jesus is the great giver of all that he owns. The same verse. So the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So Jesus Christ is the epitome of generosity and the sole source of our inheritance. He says in John chapter 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, you will be also. How, how much more generous could you be? Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days in which this is amazing. Remember when we studied this in Hebrews? After you were illuminated. Not before, after you were illuminated. After you were illuminated by the gospel, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that, here's the key, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. You know what that enduring word means? It means that what you have, nobody can take away. Once you possess Christ, your possession can never be taken away. Never. Never. See, that's the thing. It's like there's no temptation for me to rob from God. Do you know why? Because once you begin to store your treasure up in heaven where moth and, and rust can't steal, you, I mean, what, what, what is the temptation? Once you've experienced the provision of God in your life, the last thing I would do, the last thing I would do is take that into my own hands. The, one of the greatest joys in my life is just to give to the kingdom of God. It's just amazing. It's just such a joy because of how God just blesses and just shows you how wonderful he is and how faithful he is. I wouldn't trade that for anything. And when you receive your reward, I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt you're not going to be disappointed. There's nobody in heaven or ever going to be in heaven that ever for one millisecond regretted one act of obedience. No. In the presence of Jesus, no one will be asking, was it really worth it? Was it really worth it to try to take a little bit more than I give? Try to just get a little bit extra. Try to, try to work my way around. There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with trying to get ahead in life. Nothing. If you do it the right way. I mean, I literally watched... My in-laws do the impossible. Do you understand that? 
in my, right before my very eyes. One day they have nothing. And they just walk by faith and do things according to God's plan. It just was an amazing thing for me as a brand new Christian to be able to watch. I am so thankful for that. So thankful for that. The question we're going to ask standing before him in awe is why in the world did we find it all so difficult? Notice life in a communitarian society. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, Jesus here is not saying that there's anything wrong with inviting your friends and your neighbors over. What he's saying is wrong is if you live your life and you don't bless people who can't bless you in return. But it's not just that it's wrong. Look at what you miss out on. When Jesus says you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just, how do you think that's going to go? I cannot wait. So in light of all this, why would we not pour out our life for him? All of that from simple words, thou shalt not steal. It's because God cares about ownership, because he cares about stewardship, and he cares about responsibility, and he wants life to be good for his people. He wants people who don't have things in the kingdom of God to not even realize that they don't have things. Have you ever heard somebody say, because I've heard a lot of people say, they said, you know, growing up, we never had anything, but we didn't know it. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. That's how it should always be in the kingdom of God. Now go home and watch the news and think about it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. Your word's instructive to us. And Lord, my prayer.